everybody and welcome to a new episode of Evie's Korean Drama Podcast Show. My name is Evie, I'm your host, and I am a K-drama obsessive. So this is the show where I waffle on about all of the K-drama that I love. If you'd like to support the show, you can check out my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Evie Korean Drama Podcast. There you will find extra podcast episodes and updates on what I'm watching at the moment. Also, just before I get started, please be warned that I do swear a little bit on this show when I get excited. And when I'm talking about K-drama, I always get excited. Alright, so I thank you very, very much for listening and let's get on with the K-drama show. and welcome to a new episode of my K-drama podcast show. Today I'm going to be chatting with all of you about my personal absolute total favorite K-drama that aired during 2021. This drama completely blew me away. I love it so much but it's a little bit heartbreaking too. Oh my gosh. Um, So I am talking about The Red Sleeve, also known as The Red Sleeve Cuff. So this drama is a saguk, so a historical drama set during the Joseon period in Korea. It's set during the kind of later 1700s. Um, And it is a romance. uh, And I, I think it's kind of described as a traditional historical. So that means, you know, it's not a fantasy fusion or youth, that kind of stuff. Um, and it's a bit more realistic, I want to say. And I do feel like, well, for me personally, this is a genre that I am really, really into already. Like I have to say, you know, I say that this drama is one of my favorite, one of my favorite dramas of all time now. I love it so much. Every time I think about it, my heart aches and it's been a little while since I finished it now and I cannot get it out of my mind. But I am going to say that it ticks a lot of my personal taste boxes. Um, The casting for me is perfect. I love both of these actors. I am very interested in whatever they do Um, and they're such a good combination. Um, I love things, you know, as any listeners to this podcast know, I love things set in Joseon. I'm very interested in Joseon history and this drama is set during a real period in Joseon in history that I was very fascinated to learn a little bit more about. And it also hits my kind of um, personal taste box, I think, in the fact that the female lead is quite a you know, quite a lowly person in Joseon times within the Joseon class system. And because I don't know. I always just find that very, very fascinating. And I think perhaps because I have done a bit of reading about Joseon history and, you know, it's hard to even find that much information about women in general, let alone like, you know, lowly women. (laughs) So I really enjoyed kind of seeing this depiction of what Joseon palace life and court life might be like from the perspective of someone who works there and I know there are other dramas like that as well um, but it's just it's a personal taste thing for me 
So now that I've got those sort of like caveats out of the way, I will say this is just the best drama. (laughs) It's so good. Oh my gosh. Um, So yeah, I, I really, really fucking loved this one. All right. So this drama, I don't even think I said, it's a 17 episode historical romance uh, so it came out um, kind of started airing in November 2021 uh, it was originally a 16 episode drama but it did very very well uh, domestically in Korea was extremely popular I think to the point where it got a one episode extension and I'm not gonna lie so I, I watched this one while it was airing and when I heard I think about maybe halfway through is when it got the one episode extension because it's very popular right from the start even though I don't think it was like a buzzy drama before it came out it just obviously hit the spot with a lot of people which I totally get because it's completely brilliant um, but I was really nervous when I heard it had a one episode extension because Oh, I didn't want like some weird fan servicey extra episode just tacked on. And like, you know, the, the show is written, it's written so well. It felt so tight. It felt so like the emotions are progressing in such a fascinating and a natural way in the romance, but also the complications and conflict in the romance. And I just felt like the writers had such a tight vision of what they were trying to create and make. And then if you have a 16 episode tight vision, of what you're doing and someone gives you an extra episode like do you have enough material to fill that or do you just extend the story you have and therefore you know kind of water down your pacing and your tight structure so I was super super nervous with this one episode extension and then I watched the end (laughs) and look it ripped my heart out and stomped upon it on the ground and I nearly died like it was a very intense watch those last two episodes of this show each of which like the first uh the second last episode is like an hour and 20 minutes and the last episode is an hour and 40 minutes so you know they're not short episodes um but they the drama has the material to fill those and it is such a a bittersweet ending. I just don't even know how to describe how I felt about this ending. It's such a strange experience, actually, because, you know, I should really talk about the ending of the drama at the end of this podcast episode. But, you know, I almost feel like the drama is in two parts in some way, because it starts off with this like kind of you know, there is this realism to it. And particularly around the female lead side and and his as well, actually, it's um you know, there's history and this sort of authenticness to what's going on, but it is romantic. It's a bit fizzy. You know, she'll sort of fall over on him and, you know, a few of those kind of tropey hijinks happen at the start. But as the drama progresses, we do get less and less of the tropey hijinks and more and more of like, whoa, (laughs) oh my gosh. All right. So I'm jumping all over the place, of course. Um, But I have to say as a whole, I loved this. I think it was perfect. I can't say that I'm, it's, I have such a complicated relationship with the ending because it hurts so much, but I also think it was the right way to end the show. And it, oh, it almost would have been disrespectful to the rest of the show. I think not to have an ending that felt so moving. And sometimes I wonder if shows get under your skin more because they're not, you know, fan servicey, neat, happy, tied up endings. Like I know those make you feel good. And I love shows with a tight, you know, happy, neat ending. 
that just makes me feel good. But sometimes they don't get under your skin in the same way. And I have to say this show throughout the whole runtime has not left my mind. I was going crazy every, every single week waiting for new episodes. Like I adored it. Um, every second of it. And I think it was perfect. Uh, so I'll talk more about it all. Oh my gosh, this episode is going to be all over the place just because I fucking loved this. I absolutely adored it. Uh, so why did I watch this? Again, this is where my personal taste comes into it. And I think it's really interesting or probably good for me to note uh, for listeners of my random K-drama podcast show that, um, you know, obviously everyone has different taste in what they like. And when I'm saying that this is the best drama ever, which, you know, it is, it's the best drama. It's so good. Um, but it does hit my spot um, for a lot of the things that I like. So that is why I watched it. I was so excited about this drama from the second I first heard about the casting. It was very interesting. Um, I've said this on the podcast before, but uh, during the year of 2020, there really wasn't any historicals that practically came out till maybe December, I think. And then there was quite a few historicals that came out during 2021. And then at the very end of 2021, I guess around, you know, um, like September or August and November, we suddenly had so many all at once historicals coming out um, and really interesting ones, but ones that were very, very different in tone. And I think at one point I was watching like four historicals at once and I tried to stop myself because out of like, you know, all the upcoming dramas, um, this one, The Red Sleeve, was the one that I was immediately most excited about. Uh, this would be because it was described as a traditional sagok, um, which I really, I love the idea of these slightly more authentically, historically correct kind of dramas. I don't know why that really, really appeals to me. Um, and also because it is a romance. So it's like not a historically accurate drama that is only about old man politics, which, you know, has its place. And I still find that quite interesting too. Um, but this one was very much so a romance. And not just any romance, but a romance between a crown prince and a court lady. And a court lady is basically, you know, she's she's pretty lowly. Like, um, so it's a very interesting class divide between these two that I always find very interesting. And because this court lady is a main character, I just felt like it would be a window into something that I hadn't really seen before. Um, and I always love dramas with a really kind of high female focus, I guess. I don't know. I just always find that really interesting to see what, you know, women might've been doing, even if it's totally made up in like, you know, a fantasy fusion drama, but whatever. Um, so this one really hit all my spots in terms of the setup. It started releasing posters that are just so so like subtly, beautifully romantic, like all about the barest touch and all that kind of stuff, which I just, again, adore, like those slow building romances. Um, and the casting for this was a major reason why I immediately became very interested. And I have to say too, this one is um, based on a novel series uh, by an author called Kang Mikong. Kung Mi Kong, uh, which was published in 2017, um, which is apparently very good and also not translated into English. So I can't buy it. Maybe it's translated illegally somewhere, but how sucky. I would buy it if I could. Or I should just keep learning Korean. <laughs> that will never happen. Oh my gosh. 
Um, so I'm going to move into the casting now, which again was a huge reason why I was interested in this drama. So our male lead is played by the actor Lee Jun Ho. Uh, Lee Jun Ho has so he's a K-pop, uh, very famous dude. Um, I think he's what what do they call it? Like second generation K-pop um, from. 2pm. I think I've got that right. Same band that Taekyeon is in, which just blows my mind because they're both so popular and in so many things. Um, so Lee Jun Ho, I first saw in a drama um, when I watched the kind of mellow romance, which I think is from 2017 called Just Between Lovers, which he stars in with Won Jin Ah. And Just Between Lovers is again, one of my favorite dramas of all time. I didn't really follow Lee Jun Ho around Dramaland after that. I think I tried some of his other shows and just never really fully got into them but I always meant to kind of go back and try again because I loved him in Just Between Lovers like I thought he was fucking brilliant like and that role in Just Between Lovers is very very emotional like you know lots of crying and destructive behavior and all that and I just thought his acting was really really good and he's so likable but I could never figure out I wasn't I wasn't sure if like I, I just loved this character that he played or if I loved him as an actor or what um he's very very handsome of course um which is always a good thing <laughs> Um, and so I was really happy to see his casting in this, even though I hadn't really seen him in anything for a while, other than multiple rewatches of Just Between Lovers. Um, but I really like him, so I was very happy. Uh, the female lead is played by the actress Lee Se-yong. And Lee Se-yong is one of my favorite actresses that I absolutely adore. And I'm always very interested in seeing what her new projects are. And I do try to give her things a go um, whenever she brings out something new. But I just sometimes I'm like, oh, that is not a setup that interests me. And I do think she's been in a lot of things that just personally haven't appealed to me in terms of the setup or whatever. Um, but I do kind of always keep an eye out on what she's doing. So Lee Se-yong is an actress. Um, she played the zombie in uh, Korean Odyssey or Hwayugi, also known as Hwayugi, um, which she was great in. She's also got the female lead role in um, Hit the Top, which was a mad drama with Yoon Shi Yoon. So those are the ones I've seen, but she's also in The Memorist and I don't know, a whole bunch of other shit. Dr. John, I don't know, some other things that I've tried or just haven't watched yet. So I love her. I was so excited when I saw she had the lead in this. Um, so the second male lead is played by an actor called Kang Hoon. Kang Hoon was new to me. I have never seen his face before. I have a feeling that he may be a K-pop man as well. He was very good in this and played an absolutely fucking fascinating character that was very, very interesting to me um, and not at all your traditional second male lead in Anyway, like um, no love triangle in this. It's a whole different thing that's going on with him. And he was a great character um, and very complicated. I think um, all the characters in this drama have a lot going on. I don't think anyone is one note or simple. Um, everyone is painted in many, many shades of grey um, with lots of internal conflict. And I found this just really great characterization and really excellent writing. Um, this whole drama was excellent writing. Oh my gosh. Um, so I'll mention a couple more people, um, but there's a lot of familiar faces in this as there always are in historicals or just dramas in general, if you watch enough. Um, but the, the actor Lee Dokhwa plays King Yongjo, who is our main male lead's grandfather and the king when the drama opens. 
I think he's very, very good at playing this hot and cold, slightly frightening, but sometimes very loving and grandfatherly king. Um, very fascinating character again. And the actress Jung Hee-jin plays his queen. Um, so not our prince's grandmother, but like a, a younger queen. Um, and this actress Jung Hee-jin plays um, Lee Jun-ki's sister in... Um, uh, what's the, oh my gosh, Flower of Evil. She's in Flower of Evil um, and I've seen her pop up in some other stuff. I thought she was wonderful. Um, and then lots of other familiar faces. Uh, yeah, so I probably won't go into the rest. Um, but a great cast, I think. Um, and particularly those leads are just out of this world casting for me. I was so excited. So my last question I always ask during my little intro section of this, this show is, should you watch this drama? Should you watch The Red Sleeve Cuff? Fuck yes. <laughs> Go and watch this drama. Um, I think this is incredible. I think if you... I think if you like stories, if you're interested in stories at all, this is an amazing one. Like it's so well done. I think if you like romance, I think that you, that this is worth checking out. It's a slow burn. It's a very, very conflicted and interesting and just written so well and performed so well by these actors and everything in the drama looks fucking gorgeous like the amount of care and thought I think that have been put into this really makes it a real gem um I also want to say um so lovely listener Catherine who has become a friend through this podcast um you know who I've met because of this podcast but I just wanted to say as a you know should you watch it um uh, I think Catherine and I have slightly different k-drama taste um but obviously a lot of crossover but Catherine's sort of like a little bit newer to the historical drama side of stuff but she told me and particularly I want to say the serious like you know the slightly more you know I, I think some people get turned off because they get worried about politics and boring stuff and um Catherine said that she absolutely fucking loved this one I'm just gonna put that <laughs> swear word in there too <laughs> just to try and convey her strong feelings when she um messaged me <laughs> Um, and I just want to say that because I would have thought that maybe, you know, before this, I might not have thought this would be exactly to her taste because of some of the other conversations we've had around historicals and around, you know, just different dramas and stuff. But she loved it, um, I think, in the same way that I loved it. And so I guess I want to use that as an example of maybe you've been listening to this podcast for a while and you you know, enjoy listening to me waffle on about dramas, but maybe, you know, you don't have quite the same taste as me. And we, you know, like maybe you don't always agree with all the stuff that I love, but it might still be worth giving this one a go. Um, you know, I don't know. I really, really loved it. I thought it was just such a gem. It's so perfect and amazing. And I do just think if you like anything romantic, I think this is so worth your time. I think it will touch your heart. It's really a beauty. Um, and I think even if you feel like your taste runs slightly differently to mine, maybe, maybe give it a go anyway and just see what you think. And hopefully, I hope this drama will drag you into its world and yeah, you'll get immersed in this most beautiful moving story. Um, all right, I'm going to stop <laughs> crapping on now. I'm going to move in um, to a bit of setup about the drama. Um, yes, okay. <laughs> all right, so 
I'm going to do something a little bit silly that you may or may not enjoy to listen to. And I feel um, very comfortable with telling you that if this is not your jam, feel free to just skip forward a little bit in this episode. Um, but as listeners know, um, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, I am very, very interested in Joseph's history. And this drama is very particularly set kind of after a huge event in Joseon history that is quite famous and even though it's not portrayed in the drama a lot of the drama is informed by this event and you feel this event cast a long shadow over all these characters and really I think impact the way they think and what they do and how they act and very much so influence the relationships within the show, particularly between our main male lead, Yi-san, who is the crown prince. So Yi-san and his grandfather, King Yongjo, um, their relationship is very much rooted in what has happened in the past. And I guess I just wanted to talk a little bit about the history. <laughs> Hopefully this isn't boring. And I feel that you know, if you are listening to this, this podcast and you've already watched it, you might find this interesting if you didn't know. And if you already know, hopefully you don't mind me waffling on about it. All right. So that's enough caveat while I try and <laughs> explain the reason why I'm doing this to you. But what I am going to do is just read a couple of sections that I've highlighted. Um, hopefully it's not too long. I hope we'll see. Um, and again, just feel Feel free to skip if this is not your deal, um, but hopefully it will give you a little bit more insight around the drama if you didn't know. Um, so this book that I'm just going to read some sections from is called Creative Women of Korea, the 15th through to the 20th century. Uh, century. So it's just like each section in the book is about a different, you know, usually Joseon Korean woman and some cool shit that she did. But this particular chapter is relevant to this drama, The Red Sleeve, because it is kind of talking about these memoirs that were written by our main male lead. So this is Yi-san. Yi-san is our crown prince in this drama. So his mother is Lady Haegyong. Uh, she's not known as Lady Haegyong in the drama because I believe that that is like a later title that is gifted to her later in life and not during the time of this drama. But later in life, Yi-san's mother, Haegyong, writes, I think it's four memoirs that are unbelievably famous in Korean history for many, many reasons. Um, and I guess I, what I'll do is just read these sections and let this book tell you in a much more eloquently eloquent way than I ever could. And it'll explain a little bit about, you know, this event that overshadows the drama. And I'll try and let you know who the characters are. But so this stuff I'm about to read now is by um, an author called Ja Hyun Kim Habush. Uh, so uh, she says, the memoirs of Lady Haegyong, so that's our lead character's mum, uh, and Haegyong lived 1735 to 1815. So these memoirs, known in Korean as Records Written in Silence, are viewed as both a literary masterpiece and an invaluable historical document. Lady Haegyong was the wife of Crown Prince Sado. So Crown Prince Sado, of course, is our main male lead, so Yi-san's dad. So Crown Prince Sado, who at age 27 was executed by his father, King Yongjo. And King Yongjo is our grandfather king as the drama begins. So the Sado incident, even by the standards of ruthlessness and cruelty associated with royal houses, was quite a gruesome affair. 
One hot day in July 1762, King Yongjo, a grandfather king, ordered his son to enter a rice chest of about four feet square, which was then sealed. There, in the chest, Prince Sado died eight days later. This incident, the only publicly known filicide in the 500-year Joseon dynasty, cast a terrible pall over those who were involved in and had lived with the tragic act. Most conspicuous among them were his father, King Yongjo, whose long and brilliant reign was deeply compromised by this inhumane filicide, and Sado's son, King Jongjo. So King Jongjo is the name given to our male lead, Yisan, when he ascends the throne. So um, Yisan, our main character, whose reign surpassed even that of his grandfather in brilliance and accomplishment, and yet who, all his life, battled the shame and grief his father's tragic death had left behind. Uh, it also obviously impacted other ministers and tutors, some who would take their own lives or suffer political upheavals on account of their relationships to Prince Sado. So this is definitely explored all through the drama. We're constantly hearing about court ladies who don't trust the king and, you know, don't don't trust, I guess, the authorities and stuff because of these terrible hardships that they have experienced in the past through this Crown Prince Sado incident. So as Crown Prince Sado's wife, Lady Haegyong, so Yisan's mum, was profoundly affected by the prince's death and its repercussions. Nonetheless, as was the custom for a woman in Joseon Korea, she was to be mostly hidden from public view. Had it not been for her memoirs, Lady Haegyong, like countless other women whose husbands, fathers or sons were involved in political incidents, she would have been dimly perceived as someone who suffered silently behind the scenes with only the barest of biographical facts known about her. Breaking that long silence, however, Lady Haegyong wrote four sets of memoirs in which she narrates not only her own life, but also the Prince Sado affair from her perspective and renders judgment on all concerned. So this is like, that's pretty incredible, I think, um, just at the time. You know, there's so little written, I guess, about women's lives during this time. Um, and obviously, you know, it's such a famous and, you know, awful incident really so i'm just going to read a little bit more that goes into a, a, just a tiny bit of detail about sado and maybe kind of what happened to make him get in the rice chest and it also touches a little bit on jongjo who is our main character yisan and maybe some of the impact on him so this author says at 14 sado was appointed prince regent and took part in governing along with his father so his father is grandfather king Although Sado was extremely intelligent as a child, he grew negligent, negligent? Hmm. of his studies, which brought his father disappointment and anger. At some point, something apparently went terribly wrong. Prince Sado went mad. He grew violent and he began to kill people. Finally, he posed a threat to the whole court, hence Yongjo's final decision to eliminate him. So this incident touched on the legitimacy of the royal house. So Prince Sado's son by Lady Haegyong was the remaining heir to the throne. So they're talking about our main character, Yisan. He succeeded his grandfather and ruled as King Chongjo. 
By Joseon law and custom, a criminal's son was not allowed to hold public office, much less occupy the throne. In fact, the bizarre method employed in killing Sado was an attempt to avoid the appearance of a criminal execution. Joseon custom forbade shedding royal blood. The accepted form of execution was a cup of poison, but this definitely... Uh, would have signified criminal execution. So the only way for Sado to die was for him to commit suicide. Yongjo repeatedly urged his son to kill himself, and Sado attempted to strangle himself, but each time his tutors untied him. So this method was not practicable. With the rice chest, it was different. Yongjo ordered Sado to get into it. Sado jumped in. Yongjo closed the cover and sealed it. Then, no one save the king himself could unseal the chest. Perhaps, according to the narrowest interpretation of the letter of the law, this was not considered an execution. Yongjo was still uncomfortable to leave the matter as it stood. Two years after Sado's death, King Yongjo made Jongjo, Yisan, a posthumously adopted son of Prince Sado's deceased older brother. This measure legally severed Yisan from Prince Sado. It meant that Yisan was not in any legal sense the son of someone who might be called a criminal. When Yisan ascended the throne, he could not offer his parents the honours due to the parents of the king, such as the posthumous title of king and queen or places in the royal temple, for example. Um, so that means his mum, Hegyong, could not become the queen dowager, which we see in the drama. She's sort of living outside the palace and sort of shunted off to the side. So from Yisan's point of view, this was a constant reminder of his father's tragic death and the precariousness of his own legitimacy. So Yisan was only nine years old when Prince Sado died. I do have more, but I feel like I've been reading for quite a while and I should probably stop. But I, it's kind of like I do have more about kind of want, I guess, what happened to Prince Sado. And really, um, I guess to sort of paraphrase it, so reading it all out to you guys in case it's boring. I find it very, very interesting. Um, but, you know, in Lady Hegyong's memoirs, she kind of goes into detail about the relationship between Yisan's dad, Crown Prince Sado, and Yisan's grandfather, King Yongjo, um, and their relationship was very, very troubled um, in the fact that I guess King Yongjo was extremely strict on his son and had very, very high expectations. And even though Crown Prince Sado was apparently brilliant and very intelligent and very, you know, highly educated, this pressure on him began to sort of crack a little bit. Um, and I guess Yongjo began to humiliate his son in front of the you know entire court, like ask him hard questions and then make fun of him for the answers that he gave. And this eventually led to Crown Prince Sado being unable to say anything and do anything or make decisions, which only made Yongjo angrier because he felt that his son was useless. And this descended into Crown Prince Sado having this issue with, um, you know, getting dressed in the morning because it, it meant that once he's dressed, he has to go pay respects to his father or say good morning to him or whatever. And so eventually he had this, what his wife describes in her memoir as a clothes phobia, which meant that he would be, you know, ripping his clothes when people are trying to dress him and sometimes physically hurting the people that are trying to dress him. And eventually uh, Crown Prince Sado began to slip away from the palace in disguise and spend long periods of time away from the palace. Apparently, he also dug 
a hole under the palace and lived in a weird three-bedroom cave that he made and hung out there a lot. And eventually this descended into him murdering a eunuch and walking into his wife's area and her court lady area holding the eunuch's head. So things got violent and scary very fast. And in the red sleeve cuff, um, in this drama, a lot of the court ladies talk about this time of terror when they were attacked by Crown Prince Sado and no one did anything. And this is true. You know, apparently he killed a lot of people and raped and murdered a lot of court ladies, mainly the ones of his palace. So the ones, you know, devoted to serving him, that's their purpose. That's what they have to do. So it was very, very, very scary times. Um, but I guess that explains a little bit about what our main male lead, Yisan, is living in the shadow of and explains why in the drama there's this kind of silence around Yisan's dad that no one sort of is allowed to talk about him and it also explains, I think, why King Yongjo, the king, the grandfather at the start of the drama, is so hot and cold towards his grandson. You know, sometimes he's so loving and he has good advice and other times he's so harsh and one wrong foot like one step in the wrong direction by Yisan could mean you know him dying basically it's very very scary and precarious and on top of that we have in the drama all the court people like all the um, you know ministers and stuff are constantly kind of watching Yisan and waiting for him to go mad like his father did um and you know start wreaking destruction so it's very very precarious i guess for yisan and i don't know i just found that really interesting to kind of understand and i think it's not really put in the drama because i guess in korea it's just so well known all this stuff um that you can just put the shadow of, in of of these events and everyone will know what they're referring to um and so i think some viewers probably will also know just because I think this stuff has been depicted in dramas and movies quite a lot and referred to quite a lot um so yeah anyway maybe that was helpful maybe it wasn't um so what I'll do now is just uh, get into the setup I suppose of the red sleeve cuff so the drama really opens I think it's um about two years after the death of crown prince Sado so Yisan is probably 10 because I think he's eight when his father is executed so Yisan, oh, this little kid who plays Yisan at this point is amazing. He's so good. I just couldn't believe like he's so teeny tiny and just such a good actor with so much presence and so much emotion in his voice. I was very impressed. Um, so we're kind of following, you know, little boy Yisan around and also our main female lead played by Issa Young when she gets older. But at this point, um, played by a small tiny child whose name I haven't looked up uh, and her character's name is Dokim. So Dokim is a court maid and she is in the palace so she's about 10 as well and she's kind of like a court maid tradie, uh, not a tradie, <laughs> trainee. She's a trainee at this point. So she's learning you know how to be a court maid and all the do's and don'ts and all the things that you know the unsaid things in the palace that you need to be wary of and frightened of and be careful of. 
Um, and so Dokim is like the drama really opens with the death of Grandfather King, so King Yongjo's concubine. Um, and she, you know, all the it's very much from the court lady's perspective as they're watching this woman who many, many years ago used to be a court lady, was, you know, risen up to be the concubine of the king and has now passed away. And her funeral is, you know, it's a huge procession, like it's a big deal and they I guess know that that is not their fate so it kind of talks a little bit about you know what a court lady's duty is and her duty is to obviously serve the king remain chaste to the king the king can have them if he wants but you know he probably won't because there's hundreds and hundreds of them Um, but they have to remain chaste if they don't we see later in the drama like any what's considered as adultery if um, a woman ever gets with anybody other than the king um, leads to her execution so the rules are very strict and there's you know they're just servants really they also they can leave the palace grounds on certain days that they have holiday days but pretty much their life is very much so within these walls um, and the court lady that's talking to a very young Dokim, who's this, um, you know, she's the high court lady who's a major character in the drama and involved in all sorts of nefarious stuff that was extremely interesting. Um, but she's kind of talking about, I guess, the fact that this woman has died, you know, in the palace, but no one is meant to, I guess, die in the palace, except I think it's, is it just the king? Um, and she's kind of, I guess, lamenting the fate of a court lady that if she gets very sick, she'll be shunted out to die outside of the palace. She will never get, you know, a funeral procession like this. And, you know, it's, it's very sobering, I suppose. Like you kind of get a sense of the powerlessness of this position, this very lowly position, even though this particular court lady who's talking, who's become a high court lady has sort of risen up um, to sort of have some level of power within these walls. Um, so Dokim is sent off like you, she's a very precocious little girl she's very bold and really loves stories and novels and stuff like that and she's sent off to pay her respects to this dead concubine of the king um, on behalf of I don't know the high court lady or some shit who knows anyway so she heads off there and promptly gets lost and is crying a lot and meanwhile Yisan who is not allowed to go see this dead concubine who is his grandmother who's um, his what yeah, his grandmother. So he wants to go and pay his respects and say goodbye to her. And so, you know, they kind of meet on the way and she, you know, obviously doesn't ever remotely guess that he could be the crown prince and just thinks he's some sort of, you know, son of somebody or other or whatever. And they kind of sneak in together and they have this conversation where Yisan is, you know, kneeling before the body of his his grandmother, paying his respects. And he's extremely upset because he wasn't allowed to see her as she was sick and dying. So he's never sort of been able to ease his heart. They had this fight. Um, and I think it's true in history that this, you know, the, this is the mother of Crown Prince Sado who is lying there. And she's the one who eventually urged, you know, her husband, King Yongjo, to do something because Crown Prince Sado was, you know, murdering a lot of people. And Yisan, he's such an angry 
little boy really like he can't quite forgive her and he's had this huge fight with her but he feels so guilty and he loves her so much and he can't really forgive his grandfather for doing this to his father like even you imagine being eight years old and seeing your father die over eight or nine days in a box in the middle of the courtyard like it's just horrendous um and they have this conversation you know and Yisan cries and Dokim uses her you know her little court lady red sleeve cuff to wipe away his tears and he's extremely moved by this I guess just act of compassion I feel like Yisan just lives in such a frightening world where everyone I feel like every single thing anyone says or does is so considered you know it's so calculating everything is done for a reason and I think maybe just a scrap of just kindness with no strings attached is maybe you know, very meaningful to him. Um, and then, you know, they hear that the king's coming. So the king turns up, even though he's not meant to be there because, you know, protocol says he's not allowed to see her, but he loved her. So he wants to say goodbye. So he sort of bursts in and Yisan gets away, but Dokim is sort of caught in there and she has an interaction with the king. Um, and I love the king. He's so, he's just a lot of different things. Um, he's very, very scary at times, um, but he's like, I don't know, he's like a storm, just comes and goes really quickly. These emotions are so different all the time. Sometimes he feels so benevolent and kind and bestowing all these, you know, nice niceties and kindnesses on his subjects. And other times he's absolutely terrifying. You think he's going to get someone murdered, like, and he just, he wouldn't care either way. A very interesting character. So anyway, um, as small children, you know, Dokim just goes back to her life as a court lady. And Yisan, meanwhile, is still very moved by this and has sort of asked people to look for her and eventually has this conversation with, you know, Lady Hegyong, his mother. Um, and he kind of realized, like, he it's not something he can do. And he sort of realizes his very precarious position and that, you know, he and he's a very serious very smart little boy and you can see that he's had to be you know this is survival mode for him and he doesn't really have time for friendships or connections or anything like that he just needs to be clever and survive um during this time there is this whole like big kerfuffle with this um book that has a page or something about it um about crown prince sado in it which um king yongjo has outlawed and yisan has a copy and you know someone who's kind of going against yisan like i think it's his fucking auntie or some shit anyway lets the king know and the king flies into an absolute rage and is literally ready to murder Yisan if he does have this outlawed thing because he feels like that's him going against the king you know like um and Yisan does have this book um but in the end Dokim saves him and tears out the page so they have this very early connection which you know Yisan never knows that it's Dokim till a lot later but she does save his life and I feel like she saves his life multiple times in this drama she is a very very intelligent <laughs> very intelligent person um so then it skips forward and Dokim kind of I don't know she's been assigned to kind of look after this library 
she's never seen Yisan, even though she's sort of destined to be his court lady. She's sort of, and I imagine that must be what it's like, you know, these, these courts are so big and she just looks after this library that is very disused and he never goes there. Um, her whole passion is like books and she transcribes with this beautiful hand. And so she's sort of got quite a good standing because of that. So she works with, I think, the princesses to transcribe books and create things and stuff like that. Um, and she also has three absolute bestie court ladies, which was a relationship that was so beautiful in this drama. Her and her friends, it's just such a touching relationship. And this idea of her so desperate to hold on to how things are with them, that this is her family, this is her place. And yet this, you know, inevitableness that things must change. And of course they do later on in the drama, which just was achingly beautiful and at times very sad. Um, but at this point in the drama, everything feels, you know, it's quite fizzy and fun and nice. Um, it, although Yisan, <laughs> it's, you know, it's never that nice for him, I feel like. And maybe that's the kind of juxtaposition between them. You know, Yisan is always in this very dark place because of the politics and the time and the long shadow of, you know, the Crown Prince Sado incident and the precarious nature of his position in the court. You know, until his grandfather passes away and Yisan can legitimately rise to the throne he is just constantly facing so much insecurity and so much opposition to his just existence and I feel like he's in such a dark place all the time Meanwhile, Dokim, I feel like this, this kind of period in her life is painted, like even though there are dangers and there are things she gets involved in that are scary, I feel like it's painted in this very bright and beautiful way, um, this kind of childlike innocence to it. Um, and it's interesting to me now looking back because really that's the whole point is she has this idyllic kind of phase and as the drama progresses, it's harder and harder for her to hold on to it. Um, was Yisan really he never really gets that and we see that from the very beginning when he's you know we meet him when he's 10 and his life is fucked basically um, so for him Dokim is I don't know just a joy she's something else aside from his whole existence that is so dark um, because she is so bright and vivacious and wonderful and of course when they meet through a chance sort of like you know, what happens? I think she comes running down a hill and she like slams into him and they both go flying into the water in a very fun and cute tropey first meeting, which of course he's the king and she's a court lady. So it's very hilarious. She never sees his face um, and quickly runs off and is horrified that she just did this to the, oh, to the crown prince. He's not a king at this point. And then meanwhile, she meets him properly face to face in her little library. And she thinks that he's trespassing. She doesn't realize he's the crown prince. She thinks that he um, some other minister dude that's quite high up but she feels pretty bold like that she can kind of boss him around a bit and tell him what to do which you know he's super angry about it but he keeps coming back so he's always like really shocked and angry at her and yet he also can absolutely not stay away like he's just there all the time and he keeps wearing his you know non-crown prince robes so she can never figure out who he is and eventually you know it's all very cute he starts sort of playing games with her kind of mean games I have to say like teasing her um, by making her come in and write apology letters to him as crown prince but never showing his face and he's just literally having the time of his life with this double identity that he clearly wants to keep going forever. 
Um, I found this this portion of the drama unbelievably charming. Like it was so nice to the point where I think it lasts maybe two episodes um, that she, you know, thinks that he's somebody else. And she's slowly beginning to become friends with him and care enough about him to stick her neck out in a very dangerous kind of um, situation with the king when she thinks that he's in trouble because she thinks the crown prince is in he is in deep trouble but she thinks that you know because of that he, uh, the guy that she thinks is just this random lord but is of course really Yisan is also in trouble so she saves him and it's very interesting I think just seeing their friendship sort of they, you know, all they do is fight and yet she goes out of her way to help him and all he does is fight with her and tease her and yet he goes out of his way to be near her all the time. And I feel like for him it's just, you know, a breath of fresh air in this stifling, terrifying life of his. And for her, I don't know, I think it's quite, she she's living a different sort of, it's not carefree, like she's got a lot of duty, she's got this, like works really hard and has to wait around and she's a servant basically. But it's still this very interesting thing and I do think on her side there is this level of friendship and trust that forms. Um, I was really nervous because... Um, you know, I, I kind of didn't want her to find out that he was the crown prince for a long time because I was really worried that, you know, I guess because she doesn't think he's the crown prince, she can speak to him quite openly. She can look him in the eyes. She's very bold. She talks back to him. She pushes him around. And seeing their relationship based on this, you know, equal footing between them was something that was very joyful to watch. Like, I just loved it, all this bickering and, you know, just progressing their relationship kind of on equal terms, even though he's constantly like, how dare you? Why would you? How could you do this? You know, but she's just, she doesn't care. So she still treats him like an equal. So I was so worried that as soon as she found out he was the crown prince it would sort of ruin this kind of footing between them where she can say what's on her mind and talk to him like a real person and so I was actually horrified at how soon she discovers that he's the crown prince and I was like no maybe this drama is gonna go shit now I think I spent every single episode of this drama in absolute terror that it wouldn't be as good as I wanted it to be and I did that for every single episode right until the end and then it finished and I was like I'm dying but also it was perfect like every episode for me was so perfect um so anyway Dokim does discover that he's the crown prince and she's very angry at him for lying at uh lying to her which again is an interesting thing um and I was very surprised with how well the drama handled this change in their relationship because suddenly there is this huge class divide between you know she cannot just say anything and do anything and yet she still is this very bold headstrong girl so there is this level that they're able to have discussions and honesty between them even though there is now this class divide you know she has to call him your highness and all this kind of stuff um I just thought it was so well done like I don't even I feel like I want to watch it again to even understand how how the writer of this drama, drama managed to progress this relationship in the way that it does, that it feels so moving. They're constantly sticking their, their necks out for each other. But at the beginning, you don't even really know, like it's such a, 
I guess it's such a relationship fraught with conflict and bickering and this kind of, you know, grumpiness that you don't even really know what's going on until there's this point where Dokim is ordered by Lady Hegyong, so Yi Sun's mother, to um, run off into the streets and follow him because, you know, spy on him basically because he's rumored to be going off and visiting Gisang houses. So entertainment houses, which he's not really meant to do. But of course, Yisan is having like meetings with, you know, his people, his loyal people who are all working their best to keep his head upon his shoulders and make sure he gets onto the, th um, the throne. And so Dokim follows and nearly dies because the second male lead um, is about to like literally murder her for spying, which she was spying, and Yisan turns up and saves her. And this is the first point in the drama. Like, you know that he's interested in her because he keeps showing up wherever she is. Like, he keeps seeking her out. He's playing with her. He's toying with her. He's teasing her. He's very grumpy. He never smiles, but also you know, he, he just can't stay away from her, but there's no real deeper emotion than that until I think this point in the drama. And I really, really loved this scene. They have this huge argument at this point. He's so angry at her for like, you know, being there and spying. And, you know, he's like, aren't you supposed to be my person? You know, she's his court lady and yet she's doing his mother's bidding. So there's all this kind of stuff going on. And she, She's very, very funny. Like, I think she kind of gets angry back until she thinks it's not, you know, and then she's sort of trying to manipulate him by, by being really like doting and agreeing with him and being all like, oh, oh, kill me, Jonah, and all this kind of stuff. So she's a very, very amusing person. I really loved her. Um, but then they, they kind of walk home and he's walking her back to the palace and he kind of gets rid of all his, you know, his guards all like fade into the background. And he brings her to a bookshop and he thinks he's bestowing this grand sort of, I guess, honor on her, you know, he's getting, he's buying her all these really expensive, amazing books. And she thinks it's a punishment because basically he's telling her to read all these like really boring books. Um, and it's a very funny scene because it's, I guess it really sets up the whole drama for this, this misinterpretation between both of them, I suppose, in the way that Yisan views their relationship and the way that Dokim views it. For her, it's very, very hard for her to accept anytime he tries to hint and by hint I mean blatantly kind of very much so state bluntly that he loves her or cares about her or shows any sort of care for her it's very very hard to take that on board because she knows she's one of many many women in the court that he could have and also one of many many women that he will have because you know princes and kings in Joseon didn't just have one wife they would have a queen and they would have multiple concubines like sometimes you look up these lists and they have they like they have a lot of concubines because it's obviously all about you know having heirs and everyone's dying in Joseon times extremely young um, but also, you know, they're the king. And as Yisan is told so many times in this drama, like, you have the right to desire anything that you want and you can have it. Um, which is, you know, it's a pretty scary position in a lot of ways for Dokim. And it's a very intense thing for her to trust his words, you know, when you know that you're just one of many. Um, but I really loved this scene. You know, they're outside the gates and he's you know, 
I think that the actor Lee Jun Ho is so good in this role. Like he, there's so many times he just barely smiles. There's so much, like you know, it's almost like a mask. He's so emotionless, and yet there's so much emotion going on behind his eyes and in his voice, and he's got so much weight to his performance. Like he's just incredible. And this is one of those times, you know, like he's so gruff and he's so expressionless and staring at her, and basically he's kind of. Pushing her to say that she, you know, cares for him or adores him, and he's kind of like, you know, you loved it when I came to the library, right? Like you were into me when I came to the library. You adored me, you know. You can't get me out of your head. And then eventually, and she's kind of like, you know, what's going on? And eventually, he comes out with, you know, what is the truth of what he's actually talking about, which kind of blindsided me as a viewer because he's been so cranky and gruff up until this point. And it's such a beautiful moment. And basically, he says, because if none of that's true, and you don't adore me, I'm sure this was like a weird sub choice that they said adore, but anyway, who knows? Um, but like, if all that's true, and you, like, you don't adore me, if I have this wrong, then it means that it's me, you know, that craves you. It's me that adores you. It's me that can't get you out of my head. And she's just like shocked out of her mind. Like this has not even crossed her mind. Like this is the crown prince. And then he just sort of walks off and she is just, you know, it's kind of the first, oh, I don't know, This it's just she cannot kind of accept that this is a real thing. She doesn't think that he means it. And she says it so many times, you know, like I, I know what's going on in your heart. And he's always like, no, you don't. Like you don't know if I'm legit or not. And if this is true or not, like she just can't read him but it's it makes sense that she can't as well so anyway I was kind of going into it a bit there but you know that kind of sets up the relationship and what happens after this point is you know he's the crown prince he keeps running into all sorts of shit in the palace like his family is just filled with vipers who are either his best friend one moment or out to get him the next moment and his relationship with his grandfather is just so fraught with conflict it's unbelievable and meanwhile Doc Im is sort of living this idea life but at the same time getting more and more drawn into Yisan's inner circle and trusting him like I feel like there's this this loyalty in her that eventually like it does turn to love but then there's a while that you're like is she in love with him or is there just this this loyalty slash love going on and then eventually you know he he is obviously in love with her basically from that moment when he kind of says this thing to her outside the palace gates. And then I feel just more and more as the drama goes along, she is so important to him. And they have so many moments that feel like such deep connection in the drama that really progress their relationship in such a beautiful way. Um, like heart pounding, romantic, filled with so much tension. Like it's really extraordinarily done how their relationship progresses um, to the point where it just feels so obvious. You know, it's obvious to everyone around Yisan that he's in love with this woman and it's obvious to him that he is, but also he can't really do anything about it because there's all this political shit going on, which Dokim keeps getting involved in. She saves him multiple times. Quite often he has to get involved and try and save her from this kind of like political intrigue, very scary stuff. Everyone trying to murder each other all the time. Very high stakes place, this palace, um, as you know, it really was. And um, people dying all over the shop in these places. Um, so yeah, I just, I loved it. And then we get to the point where, you know, Yisan 
is, you know, he's just outright saying it. He's so sure of himself and he's so sure of her feelings as well, you know, that he asks her, you know, basically to be with him, to be his, to be his concubine. And she's kind of saying, she says no. And it's such an, I don't know. I mean, this is apparently the reason that this love story, because this is a real love story, she's a real person, so is he, obviously, is so famous in history, is because, you know, apparently, you know, out of all his wives, because he had quite a few, of course he did, um, that this was the only woman that he really loved. And I think he wrote, you know, about her in his diary or some shit, not that I've read any of that, so I don't really know much about it. But I think Dokim is very famous in history for having said no to him twice. So he asked her to be his concubine, you know, multiple times over multiple years, and she said no. And in the drama, this is painted in such an interesting way because when she says no, you're kind of, at first you're kind of like, like why she loves him like you know she loves him she's even sort of admitted that she loves him to um you know her mother figure and you feel how much she loves this man but she's also unsure of him not not unsure that he loves her right then i think like i think she knows but she also knows that she will never be his number one in the way that he might be hers you know to be with him like it seems like a good deal you're like oh well you don't have to like scrub clothes and you know cook shit and be a servant and scrub the floor you get to go and um be his concubine like if you love him and you're happy with him you get to be his concubine and get dressed up in beautiful clothes and you get a beautiful house and you get taken care of and you know all this kind of stuff that seems so appealing to maybe a woman of that time you know a comfortable life and yet to dock him it is not and i i found this so fascinating as you slowly peel back the layers of what's going on with her and why she's saying no even though she loves him and you realize that there's this theme throughout the whole drama of Dokim, like she's a very lowly servant and so much of everything that she is belongs to Yisan in his role as crown prince because she's a court lady of his palace. You know, everything she does is for him, but she feels that there is a part of her that is hers. And I feel like, you know, it's her heart, it's her soul, it's her innermost thoughts that she can guard and that are individual and belong to her and that's her independence it's who she is and to be with him is to give him that to lose a part of herself and yet Yisan will remain the same you know he cannot be with her all the time he's got a country to run and she has no place in that world she can't help him she can't be with him she can't talk to him about this stuff um, and she knows too that he has responsibility to other women. So in real history, Yisan got married when he's like, I don't know, 10. <laughs> so he has a queen by this point, which they don't really talk about in the drama because it's so thoroughly unromantic, but you know, that's how things were, you know, you, you get married when you're 10. <laughs> gross um, I don't believe they consummated until they're like 14 or 15 but still like you know it's it's so thoroughly unromantic and Dokim can see this life that she would just be one small part of his life and yet her life around her with her friends and her mother figure and her freedom to leave the palace when she chooses is full it's hers it belongs to her even though you know it's just a small life and she's a servant and I thought this push and pull was incredible because I think for Yisan, 
you know, it's, it's that is beyond his scope to understand. He has been raised as a crown prince. Like he's been raised as he's going to rule this huge land. Like he's got all these responsibilities and it's very, very hard for him, I think, to understand Dokim's, you know, this, this idea she has of losing herself, you know, I don't know. I, I found it fascinating. And yeah, so I guess that's all I'll say about the setup and things just progress and progress and it's amazing and sometimes uncomfortable because Yisan is you know he's a crown prince and he has been raised to believe that he is powerful and he can have anything he wants and this is a woman who is saying no to him and on top of that he's in love with her and he believes at least at the start that she's in love with him and he cannot it's so hard for him to see things from her point of view and that is I mean, that makes sense to the man that he would have been, you know, growing up in these times, in this situation with this level of responsibility on his shoulders um, and this power that he has to order people to do anything, you know. And I don't know, I found this such an interesting exploration. It was just fascinating to me, but also like, you know, this drama is swoony and romantic and achingly beautiful and also oh yeah painful sometimes <laughs> all right so that's the setup now I'm going to get into stuff I loved even though I loved everything okay gosh oh my gosh I feel like I have so much that I would love to say about this drama but I would literally be talking for a week um I just feel that there is so so much to unpack in terms of the themes of the drama around choice and freedom, um, about, you know, the role of women or, you know, more lowly people in this sort of class system in Joseon. Obviously, so much to unpack around Yisan and his place in this world, his relationship with his bestest bud, Hong Dok Lo, who's the, the second male lead, and also his grandfather. So much to unpack around the women in the palace who all... Oh, either villains or friends or sometimes a bit of both. It's so complicated and interesting to explore these roles of women within the court and obviously between all the different court women and their dreams and aspirations and hopes. And it's just there's so much nuance in every relationship and so much, I think, theme in this drama that I'm just going to talk about some of the stuff I loved and I can't get into it all because it's just impossible. Um, but yeah, wow, I feel like, yeah, I just feel like this is huge. It's so huge and there's so much subtle subtlety in, in the progression of this story. All right, so stuff that I loved. This is just me whipping through this list because I've already been talking forever. Um, but again, I could go into so much detail, but I'm going to try not to. Um, so one thing about this drama that I think is very, very obvious from the get-go is how much care the people who've created this have put into the way it looks and feels. Um, it is different to a lot of historicals I've seen um, and I was trying to pinpoint why and I think there's a couple of things I mean I've seen so many historical dramas that are absolutely sumptuously beautiful to look at and yet this one felt slightly different so I pinpointed it to what I think might be some of these points of difference one is there's a lot of use of natural light in this drama I think often you watch historicals and, you know, people will be indoors at night and the room will just be lit very bright, which is obviously from 
you know, filming lights because <laughs> it's not something that would have been readily available to people in the 1700s. This drama, I feel like there is so much use of natural light, which lends it this authentic look and feel like, you know, there's always flickering flames. And even if those flames, like a candle or an oil drum thing or whatever, aren't in the frame, that person is still lit by whatever natural light there is, whether it's just shining through a crack in the window or weak light or gloomy. So it makes things so much darker than I'm used to while watching a lot of historicals. But also it works so well with creating tension and emotion and mood in the drama. For instance, so many, like I feel like shots are just framed beautifully with people half in shadow and half not. And it just lends to the emotions that these people are feeling as well as just looks beautiful you know in this very dark and shadowy way it's gorgeous um the other thing that I thought maybe was quite different was um I thought the costuming and clothes there was something different and I um I, and to me it kept it it felt like it was the texture of everything like when you see the crown prince robes up close they're not you know perfect modern satin and I never think about this but you know yisans were like you could see all the threads from the weaving and when you think about it that's what real silk looks like it doesn't look like modern day you know cheapo satin that you buy <laughs> um it, it there's a look and a texture to things that feel more authentic and and just lends this realness to the world I think that once you start thinking of it as a real place you start thinking of the stakes of this world as real things and things become a lot more authentic and slightly scary feeling because everyone's always on the verge of horrible death <laughs> um so I thought it looked beautiful the atmosphere was incredible I loved the instrumental OST like the soundtrack like there is a theme there with the the kind of the instrumental soundtrack that Every time I, I hear it, it makes me want to cry. It's just so beautiful and it represents so much in this progression of, you know, Dokim's life and her romance with Yisan. It's just incredible. Um, so I loved the performances. Um, I thought Ijun Ho as the crown prince or like he's incredible, particularly because he does have to play this very serious, strong person who at a lot of times like being putting on an expressionless emotionless mask is a way to protect you know your innermost thoughts while you are dealing with some very very scary political intrigue and yet you never feel that he is inaccessible like you feel like you know what's going on with this man and I think the subtlety of his performance but also the weight of his performance is incredible and again you know I'm no actor I know nothing about acting but I thought it was amazing. I thought he was amazing. He was so good. And the same for Lee Se-yong. Like, her character goes on, I think, a much, like, a stronger progression or emotional arc. You know, there's this innocence and sweetness and joy in the world at the start of the drama. And as the drama progresses, you know, she falls in love and she has, you know, she, she gains something through falling in love. But at the same time, she's constantly losing things as well. And the pain of that does, you feel like she changes. She, she really, she matures, really. She grows up and it's very painful, but also beautiful to watch. Like, I think this drama is such a, 
you know, just a message about life. And it's so true, you know. I think maybe that's why the romance and, and the story is even more, like, impactful for me in my heart because I think that it does feel real in that real life is never as candy happy sometimes there's a lot of romance books or romance shows and you know, there's a place for those stories I love those kind of candy romances where things are happy and end happy and you feel like everyone's happy but there's something so moving in watching something that has this bittersweetness and it's that idea that that is what real life is like you gain things you lose things and no matter what things cannot remain the same things will always change you know, always there's, there's no just stagnation in life as much as sometimes we might like it to be. No one likes uncertainty. Um, and I feel like it's such a relatable thing about Dokiem is this, this focus on these small joys and these small, fierce, independent choices that she can make in her life and how much these things mean to her as give her meaning in her friendships. But life changes like you just cannot hold on to things remaining the same forever and there was something so bittersweet and sad in that progression that I think Issa Young just does you know she's so beautiful she's so wonderful and I don't know she just brings that across this progression emotional progression in her character like those last two episodes were just heart-rending with her she's such a good actress I really love her <laughs> um so I've said that another thing I really love is the push and pull of the main love story um so the dialogue um is amazing I think like in just showing them getting closer and sort of peeling back the layers with each other and I just I find that so fascinating because of that class difference which really I feel like it kind of puts a well, how do you say like it, it kind of almost puts a leash on what Dokim is able to express and say because of this huge class divide and yet the writing still manages to make you feel like they are getting to know each other and this connection between them is deepening it's really really well done um, the tension is like the romantic tension is kind of unlike what I see in K-dramas a lot. And it's an interesting thing. I noticed that a lot of their very tense conversations, the music drops off. So it's really just them and their voices and this tension between them, which I think just, you know, it, the silence and just their voices and the silences and pauses, the spaces between what they say. It just, I don't know, it ramps that romantic tension up in this and I want to say this drama, like in that kind of swoon and, you know, that kind of stuff, there is a level of sexiness that is a bit unusual, I think, for a lot of romantic K-dramas where you, you almost feel like, I don't know, it's just sometimes that stuff doesn't really come into it, like beyond a kiss or something, whereas you feel like that's very different in this relationship. You feel like, you know, when he's talking about the future, you know that there is you know, you know what he's talking about and it's just different and it does lend a level of, yeah, I guess I don't want to sound so silly to say sexiness, but kind of to the tension, it's a very different type of tension. Um, so I did find it very, very swoony. Um, I really, really liked it. It's a very interesting thing too, because there are moments and I'm, you know, I have to say where Yizan is almost scarily aggressive like it does happen and he's so 
lovely, particularly at the start of the drama, you know. But once it gets to a point where she's saying no to him, there are points where he is a little bit scary in how he reacts to this. And I... Like as a modern viewer, there are points where it feels very uncomfortable where you're like, oh, you know, like a male lead shouldn't do this. He shouldn't, you know, kind of put this kind of pressure on her to give in to him or be aggressive or any of these things. Like, you know, I've mentioned before, I think um, during my 2021 year roundup, like, you know, he puts his hand on her throat at one point and there's parts later in the drama where he, you know, verbally sort of says some very scary things, like almost threats to her about what her future might be. And it's a very, very interesting thing because I, you know, as a modern viewer, like I said, it's, it can be deeply uncomfortable. Uh, but at the same time, when you think of it, I think if the story hadn't included these elements, these elements that do introduce a very uncomfortable kind of new idea into their love story, which is Yisan's power and his desire to control you know, which is his role in life. You know, he's been brought up to have power and to take control. And I think if the drama hadn't explored that side of who he is and who he's been raised to be, and of course, this is the way he's going to react to a woman who consistently says no to him. You know, as much as modern viewers might like to think he wouldn't do that, I cannot see how he wouldn't in the situation that he lives in and the time period he lives in and the man that he's been raised to be this very, you know, entitled man, not entitlement, I think, in the way that we think of it now. Like there isn't a petulance to his sort of entitlement. It's not that kind of entitlement, but like he's been raised to be a powerful, strong man who can rule his nation like so there is a level of scariness I think in that and I am I like that it's included in the drama because I think if it wasn't we might have been entering sort of candy sort of fairy tale kind of area where I would have felt like it was too much of a fantasy to think that he wouldn't have a struggle like this with his power and his power over Dokim and to me then you know, he does, like, it is scary. There is these moments of threatening her verbally or, like, just being aggressive and a bit scary. But at the same time, she says no to him and she walks away from those instances. And that is a very interesting thing because if you actually think about it in real life and you think about back then when the world was, you know, a much bloodier and scarier place, which, you know, this Joseph Court can attest to. If you can imagine a man who grows up in that environment to be a king, to be entitled to, as his, you know, the queen constantly tells him, like, you can desire anything you want and you can have anything you want. Like, imagine growing up, not only believing that, but that is true. You can, you can take anything you want. And yet, Dokim says no, and it is a no. You know, yes, he comes back and he keeps trying nonstop. And yes, it's a bit scary sometimes, but he says, he he kind of allows her to say no. And I know that's not like an appealing thing as a modern viewer, like, oh, he allows her to say no. But if you think about it in the time period, like that's pretty extraordinary. Like he didn't 
really need to do that. And we see this a lot later in the drama. You know, um, eventually he's, I mean, you know, this is what he wants, but he's also pushed into it through circumstances, which is um, a lot of the other women in the court have it out for docking. They create this sort of situation where she nearly gets executed. He comes in and his mother manages to save her last minute. So she's okay. And he's just basically immediately, he's like, right, bring her to my bed. Like, this is it. She's going to be my concubine. Like, this is what's happening. And Dokim gets no say in this matter, whatever. She gets, you know, cleaned up and put in a pretty dress and sent to his bedroom. But we also see that the the queen, so Queen Dowager at this point, um, she, you know, she's the one who sort of along with this other princess uh, or concubine kind of orchestrated this whole situation to get Dokim killed. And the queen's done it because she wants Dokim for her own. She's seen how loyal Dokim is, how smart she is. She wants her as hers. And if she can't have it, she wants to destroy it, uh, which was very interesting development, I thought, for her character. Um, but, you know, she, you already see that she's about to take Dokim back to her you know, her palace, like Dokim is, is in a position of powerlessness in the palace. She's about to get claimed by anybody. And so Yisan claims her first in a way to save her, but also this is what he wants. So we see from this instance where he just takes her, he orders people to put her in his bed, that he could have done this years and years and years earlier, but he didn't. So even though there's these moments that are so scary with him and so intense, where he's so pushy and aggressive, you kind of realize in hindsight that he didn't do this back then. He didn't do the thing where he gave her no choice. He was still asking her and she was saying no and she was walking away from those instances, which is kind of a big deal when you actually think about it for those times. And even this time, you know, in this room with her or dressed up to be his concubine and they're sitting in the bedroom together and you know what he wants from her, he gives her the choice. He basically says, you know, this is the last time I'm going to ask you this. And she is the one that takes his sleeve. She's the one who chooses this. And maybe, you know, I know this, it's like one of those things where you're like, well, what choice does she have? You know, it's either this or she has to leave the palace and go live what might potentially be a terrible life. I know that it's not like a modern ideal version of choice, but I think Dokim's whole character, the whole drama through is about that. It's about you know, this, this acceptance, I suppose, of your circumstances and this power you have in making the small choices that are open to you. It means that you are not powerless. It means that you still have some level of independence if you claim those and you believe that those are yours to have. And so I still feel that even though she almost gets, in a way, backed into a corner, there still feels so much power in her choice to remain in that room with him you know it still feels like it there was a level of independence to the decision there anyway maybe that's just me reading into it but I found this whole push and pull between choice and independence and freedom to be a fascinating conversation that this drama was exploring through their relationship and this idea of power and control, but choice 
and freedom and it was just incredible um i really loved it oh my gosh so i love the political intrigue um you know which was more family intrigue i just found it was all really interesting um okay so i've said here which i've kind of gone into but i loved the exploration of what dokim loses so once she makes the choice to be with yisan we see very quickly that life you know she she always knew what life as a concubine would be but there's even kind of worse setbacks like she says to her friends she's like oh you know I'm going to keep doing my transcribing of books and immediately you know that's what she's going to spend her time doing and her friend immediately says you know you can't people will think that that's too lowly and it will reflect badly on the king like you will be a disgrace to the king if you do that so therefore you can't do what you want so Dokim literally has nothing she just sits in a room and she waits for him and for a woman like her who is so filled with life it just it, it feels like in a way it feels like a small death like a level of her spirit can't be what she wants it to be and then there's this scene that I think was one of the most beautiful and heartbreaking scenes in the whole drama where Dokim, now she's a concubine, she's all dressed up beautifully and she's saying goodbye to her three friends who are all going out for holiday. So it's one of their holiday days from being a maid and they're able to go out to the marketplace and have a fun time beyond the palace gates. Dokim will never leave the palace again. She will live out the rest of her entire life between those walls, which are as the Queen Dowager says in another very, very interesting conversation in, in the drama, she, you know, she's the Queen Dowager at this point is lamenting the fact that her brother has died in exile and because he was considered a traitor, she's not even allowed to wear mourning clothes, you know, if, to be in mourning for him. And also she's not even allowed beyond the palace gates to attend his funeral because she is not allowed to step outside the palace like the king is, but she is not allowed to because of tradition and rules. And she says that, you know, the palace is luxurious, but it is a prison. And we see a lot earlier in the drama, too, that this queen dowager says to Yisan, you know, none of the women in this palace chose to be here. None of them. But they make the most and live and survive. But none of them chose. Um, and so taking us back to this moment with Dokim, you know, this is her life. She cannot leave the palace and so she stands watching her three best friends dressed up going out into the market and she has this kind of dream where she sees herself with them and she waves goodbye to this part of herself, the free part of herself, this, you know, and it's again with that idea of that little death in her and it's so, it's such a beautiful dreamy moment but it is heartbreaking, she's losing something. But again, we come back to that idea of choice, uh, which I thought was really interesting, which the Queen sort of says, none of these women are here by choice. And the difference, of course, that I think the drama kind of leans on, particularly towards the very end as Dokim is dying <laughs> in Yisan's arms and, you know, eventually gets pointed out to Yisan that Dokim did make a choice. She chose this. It hasn't been perfect. She hasn't always been happy. But there is a level of power in having chosen her fate for herself. And I thought that was very beautiful, but very, very heartbreaking. Oh, my gosh. Oh, so, gosh, I've got to kind of rush through this. There's so much I haven't talked about. So the second male lead, Hong Dok Ro, I feel like there's so much to talk about this man. He's so ambitious. He's so 
fascinating character and I haven't even gone into him at all. His ending, like the way that he dies in the story, his relationship with Yisan and his very fascinating kind of relationship that he has with Dokim as well. And, and, oh, the scene where his sister dies just broke my heart. But he, I found him to be such, such an interesting character. Um, yeah, amazing. I, I guess I just won't go into it because it's just too much to say. Um, but there, you could write, you could write, you know, you could talk about this man for quite a while, but I won't. Oh my gosh. Um, I also loved, again, won't go into it, but I love the relationship between King Yongjo, so the grandfather king and Yisan. I thought that was incredible. The just the hot and coldness of that king and how scary he was. And then the idea of what living like that must do to Yisan as a person, this constant feeling that at any moment his grandfather might come for him is just terrifying. Uh, so I love that. I loved the women of the palace. I thought the queen dowager was fascinating, particularly the fact that sometimes she felt like a friend, sometimes she felt like a foe. And then at other times you realize she's just as trapped as all the other women in the palace and she's a survivor and that's it. You know, there is no good or bad. She's just living. Um, I like Dokim's mother figure. Again, I haven't talked about her court lady so, but she was a fantastic character, so warm and lovely. And I loved her and her relationship with Dokim. I loved Dokim's friends. Um, again, that scene when they go to Marketplace was incredible. Another one that just broke my heart was when the kind of the sweet friend, the kind of sweeter, quiet one a lot later in the drama, you know, once um, Dokim has become a concubine. We find out that Yonghee, this kind of sweeter, kind of quiet girl, had actually, you know, she's been charged with adult uh, adultery and she's going to be executed. But of course, you know, really this means she just fell in love. And just the conversation that Dokim has with her again about choice, you know, like this girl, Yonghee, understands that she's going to die. And, you know, Dokim's kind of like, well, tell the king, you know, that, you know, you didn't want this to happen. And she's just like, no, you know, this is the man I loved. I chose to be with him because I wanted to experience love. I knew what it might end up being, but I chose this for myself anyway. And this was worth it to me. And it's such, it's so sad. Like it just made me cry and cry. But again, it's this reflection back on Dokim and her current situation. Like, because Dokim's life, when she gets with Yisan and becomes a concubine, is so filled with endless sadness, punctuated by moments of happiness with him, but so much sadness. You know, Yisan has other women in his life. At very important times, he has to go be with one of them, which is horrendous when you think about it, like absolutely horrendous and the least romantic thing ever in the whole world. But that is his responsibility. And she, Dokim always knew that. But this is why she was so reticent to make this choice to be with him, because Yisan is who he is. And if he is able to have Dokim in his life, this is he won't change, but he will be happier because she's with him. But for Dokim, it changes her entire existence and everything she is has to now revolve around him. But he can never revolve around her. He will always have, have other responsibilities that take precedence over her, which is you know, heartbreaking. Uh, so yes, what else? Oh, I was going to talk about some scenes that I loved, but gosh, it's all getting out of hand, isn't it? 
Uh, I just I loved this the time when Dokim very early in the drama you know, she has her kind of initiation day to become a proper court lady and it's interrupted I can't remember why but all this crap happens and she doesn't get her proper day and she's just so angry at Yisan because she feels like every single day is his day and this was the one day that was her day and she didn't even get this one day and we see her sort of walking around in the fields and I feel like there's so much of the drama that is shown through these moments of Dokim's you know just her sitting and waiting or you know waiting on the king just waiting hours and hours of you know waiting on other people and yet you feel there's this strong spirit in her that always remains her own it's a very incredible story uh, so I loved all the cute scenes at the start of their relationship. Um, I particularly loved the scene where Dokim is keeping uh, Yisan company when he's sort of stuck in his room and she's reading poetry through the door and they have this conversation. And then I think it's after that or before that, I think after that Yongjo turns up to the king and like kind of hits Yisan and has this like really scary scary interaction with his grandson right in front of Dokim and Dokim after Yongjo's gone is kind of like you know I can see that this has happened before and Yisan you know is able to share this pain this experience he's like you know it doesn't happen as much now that I'm older so you think about his childhood and it's horrifying and he's got this moment to share this with someone you can understand why Dokim is so important to him all right, so there's heaps more stuff I love, but I'm going to stop there and then I'm, I'm, I'm just going to try and wrap this up. Oh, my God. All right, just before I get on to the ending of the drama and talk a little bit about that, I just thought it was interesting to note. So, like I mentioned that I'm very interested in history and I have done some reading around Joseon history and it's kind of fascinating to me because when I first started reading you know, about Joseon society, the more you learn about the Neo-Confucianism of the day and these very strict class kind of divides, but also particularly about the strict framework and structures and limitations put on women. So Joseon women of the time, particularly, you know, higher up women or women in the court and you know, noble women. And it's hard not to, you know, in, in earlier periods before Joseon, women had a lot more rights, you know, like landowning rights and all different things like this, that slowly throughout the 500 year Joseon dynasty, these rights changed and dried up and women had less rights and less roles to play, like less visible roles to play. And it's very interesting because when you start learning about that, you start thinking, you know, I guess there's this tendency to almost think of women as a victim of history or of this particular dynasty and the, the structures and framework of this time, um, particularly Neo-Confucianism, I suppose. But it's very interesting because, you know, when you start reading, you know, I've read a few books like uh, Confucianism and Women or Creative Women of Korea and then, you know, a little bit from the start of Lady Hegyong's memoir and stuff. And a lot of the Korean women academics, the thing that they seem to argue the most any time this topic is brought up in one of these history books is they rail against the idea of talking about Joseon women as victims of their time. And they say that this is untrue like it's this this huge sort of argument that they have in these books which is about the fact that women you know they they lived in these times some of them believed in these same things like a lot of them and 
the idea is that they found, they carved their own agency and independence in their lives, in the spaces that they were capable of. They were not victims. They created their own spaces. They created their own opportunities. And maybe as, you know, a modern woman or a feminist or whatever, you might look at that and think that it's too small, you know. And yet, when you think about those times, it's, it's huge to carve your own independence in the space that is there for you to take. I don't know. I don't know if I'm making any sense about this. And I feel like it took me quite a while to even get my head around what some of these academics were trying to argue in these books that I was reading. But I feel like this drama is about that same thing, right? It's this idea that Dokim is restricted, that her choices are limited, that her life is limited. And yet she holds on to this part of her heart that she believes has freedom, that is her independence, that is her choice to make. And that gives her power, like it's carving out a space that is all her own in this life that she leads that belongs only to other people. And even more so when she becomes a concubine. But again, it was her choice to make and she made that choice. And I think that's a very, very interesting thing. And it just sort of occurred to me that it felt like that same thing that I've been trying to get my head around while reading these books about Joseon um, and that idea of women's agency and carving out independent spaces in a world that has these limitations and, and structures. But the fact that, you know, you're not a victim, like Dokim is not a victim. I don't think Dokim would like to be thought of as a victim. Like that's almost, is that not disrespectful to a woman with so much agency and independence and who holds onto the, the power of having choice so desperately, you know? So anyway, I don't know if any of that made sense at all, but I thought it was a very interesting idea. And maybe as a modern, you know, a, a modern reader or listener or watcher or a modern feminist, it's harder to think of things in that way because it seems very old school. And yet, I don't know, it kind of makes sense to me. Anyway, we'll see if anyone, if that made sense or not. I don't know. Maybe I'm just waffling. Um, very interesting to me though. So I'm not going to talk about stuff that I didn't love about this drama because there was literally nothing. <laughs> so good. Um, so I just wanted to talk about the ending. Um, so I've written some stuff here, but I think it's kind of what I already covered. Just, just that idea of choice, I suppose, which the queen dowager sort of brings up a lot earlier in the drama. And I think for most of the drama, I didn't really realize. I thought, I thought maybe the main theme was Dokim's freedom, but in the end, I think, I think it was Dokim's choice maybe is what really the story is about and the power of it being her choice. I don't know. Um, so the ending, like I said, so, you know, Dokim becomes a concubine and then from then on things are very sad. Although there's one moment I want to mention that I thought was beautiful, which is, you know, Dokim and, and Yisan finally get together. Um, great kissing, even though the earlier kiss was a little bit forced on his side, as in he forced it a little bit. Um, this one was nice. I felt like she was 
you know, this was her choice. She chose to be with him. And then the next morning is the most beautiful scene. And it's like they wake up. Uh, he wakes up and she's leaning over him and she's touching his face. And it's like, you know, that kind of early morning blue light in their bedroom and they're all alone. And then he kisses her. And it's just such a beautiful moment when you feel like this, this is what they both want moments like this. This is their love. And of course, when the day dawns, things change and all their responsibilities come crashing back in. But that is the moment that you feel really sums up who they are and how they feel about each other. And I thought it was beautiful to at least get a pure moment like that where they were able to forget the world and think only of each other. And although the drama gets very sad from that point on, you do feel like there will be a lot more moments like that in their lives together, but there is a lot of sadness in their lives together as well, which does feel, I guess, like real life as much as we all wish <laughs> that it wasn't. Um, so what have I written? Uh, so yeah, just I've written the sadness in caps. I hate the idea of someone not watching this show just because the ending is very, very bittersweet and mainly on the sad side, but I think this show's so worth it. Um, even though it is heartrending at the end, it absolutely is. I cried so much. Um, you feel you watch Dokim give everything up, basically. And I think up until the point, you know, she 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 gives up the things she cares about, she just gives up her time, she gives up her vocation, she still sees her friends, but she just gives so much of herself up to be a concubine. And we, we even see this conversation she has with her friends where, you know, they're kind of asking her, like, you know, one of them says, point blank, like, don't fall in love with the king. Make sure you don't fall in love with him. And you feel like, what is that? Is that the last ounce of power that Dokim has that the king does not have? Like the last part of her that she owns that he does not own and her friends warning her not to give that away. And Dokim basically indicates that it's much too late for that. Like she's fallen in love with him a long time ago, but she will never let him know that she loves him and I remember seeing that and I was just like oh like I hate this I hate it I hate that she'll never let him know because there is this agony that he has from living his entire life you know loving this woman that he can never through her actions she loves him back she never says it and he can't quite believe that she loves him. Even though as a viewer, you know, you know that she loves him and it's so painful for him. And yet there's this, this thing that she says that she'll never let him know. Even now she's his concubine, she'll never let him know that she actually loves him. And I just found that so painful. And all through the rest of the drama, I desperately wanted her to tell him, particularly on her deathbed, where she chooses to see her friends over him. I just wanted her to tell him that she loved him. But in the end, I, I can't remember if it's her or her friend. I think it's her. She tells him that, it, you know, he's kind of lamenting. This is all my fault. Like, this wouldn't have happened if you weren't my concubine. And her whole thing at that point is, no, this was her choice. It wasn't his choice. This was her choice like she wants to be responsible for her own life and her own existence but she still doesn't tell him that she loves him and I remember I just like it killed me it absolutely murdered me not hearing her say that and yet it made me wonder again about this idea of power and agency and maybe 
right to the very end, it, it was important for her to hold on to something that was her own and not belonging to him. Like the idea that the whole world belongs to him and every part of her belongs to him except this, this one piece of power that she has in the world. And I kind of, the romantic in me hates it. <laughs> I hate it. But I kind of like, the more I think about it, the more I feel like I can understand maybe why she made this decision. I don't know. It still hurts me so badly. So, you know, she, in the drama, we see that she's pregnant when she dies and she has just gone through, like, I don't know how, not very few months earlier, the, the death of her son by measles and even, you know, the death of her son, she can't mourn properly because Yisan has to, you know, he has to just get back to work. And his whole thing is, yes, my son's dead and this is fucked. But also over a hundred kids are dead from this same disease and he's responsible for all of them. They are all his subjects, are his children. So it's that horrifying thing again, you know, he can't even be there to mourn alongside her and basically he comes in and tells her to buck up and you understand why he does this it's just all so heartbreaking for both of them the responsibilities that he has that lie elsewhere that constantly drag him away from her um so yeah very sad in real life she had um she had a another daughter as well that that died just after birth and they didn't even put that in the drama because it was too sad so imagine that even worse in real life so yeah it was very 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 hard to watch <laughs> the end of the drama so basically Dokim dies without ever telling him that she loves him but she does tell him that it's her choice and that almost just slid by me I think when I was watching it it was only later that I started thinking about the importance of that and the importance of maybe her holding back the you know the I love you that I wanted so badly because he says this to her so many times and Yisan goes on with life you know in history it's very famous that he was very bereft bereft <laughs> you know that word he was very filled with grief and very very sad um and he said some poetic things I think in real life about losing her and how painful it was and it's you know kind of considered I suppose that out of all his millions of wives this was the one that he actually loved that he sort of chose um and so we kind of see him keep going you know he keeps going for quite a few more years and we see that he you know, and in history, he's kind of known, I believe, as the last brilliant Joseon king and kings after him subsequently sort of became weaker. Their power became less centralized. They were able to get things done less right up until, you know, the end of the dynasty, I suppose, um, about 100 years later which isn't that many generations, is it, of kings. Um, so yeah, he, he does a lot of amazing things. We see him in the drama talking a lot about wanting to abolish slavery, which he doesn't do in his lifetime. But I'm pretty sure I read a thing where the queen dowager, she becomes actually the regent of Yisan's son by a different wife um, when this little boy is a tiny baby boy king. And the queen regent does abolish slavery, um, but she also murders a lot of people in a Catholic massacre, I believe. So contradictions once more, as real life is always filled with. Um, and so early on when Yisan, you know, when uh, Dokim finally becomes Yisan's concubine, 
And they have this beautiful moment together where he's sleeping on her lap and he has, we never see what it is, but he has a really terrible dream and he wakes up very, very shaken, very happy to see her, but really visibly disturbed. And then they walk into the garden, they sort of embrace. And then, you know, she's like, you've got to go. Like all the ministers are waiting for you. You've got to go. And so he's eventually like, yeah, you know, I've got to go. And he leaves and he looks at her and then he goes. And then the drama continues and, you know, she has a baby and all this terrible shit happens. And then... So now that he's he's an older king, she's been gone a long time, he starts thinking about her. He calls in the court lady and we find out what happened to her friends, which again, heartbreaking. And eventually he's sick, he's very ill, he's kind of lying on what could potentially be his deathbed. Um, and he dies very suddenly, I think, in real life, um, I think in illness. And he's not particularly old either when it happens. I think he's quite young. Um, and then in the drama... You know, he's on his deathbed in his king robes and suddenly he wakes up and he's on Dokim's lap back in, you know, their little house together. And he's had this bad dream. And the bad dream, of course, is his whole existence and the fact that he loses her and he loses their children. Um, you know, they, their boy that was three years old that was going to be crown prince, you know, was going to be the next king and dies of measles. And he's he's so like really confused and stressed out and it's the exact same scene that we already saw and I loved this I just thought it was beautiful and heartrending to see him return to this point when things were so happy you know this is the point where he finally had Dokim at his side but none of the tragedy had yet happened and then they walk out to the gate and she's like you know the ministers are waiting for you you've got to go you've got to go and he's like yeah yeah and then he starts going and then in the end he comes back to her and he says, no, I'm not going to go. I'm going to stay with you. And they have like, you know, a beautiful moment where he's basically like, I don't know if this is a dream. I don't know if I'm dead. I don't really care. Like I'm here and I'm with you. And even in this moment, I was watching it. I'm like, dock him, tell him that you love him. But I think that wasn't the point of that scene. It was this idea that she was never his priority in life. She couldn't be. He had too much responsibility on his shoulders. As much as he might have wanted her to be, she wasn't. He couldn't choose her in life, but in death he chooses Dokim and he stays with Dokim and that is, you know, the love of his life and he can finally, you know, she's his priority. And I thought that was beautiful but very, very sad. But I thought this little, this idea of this, this little round dream, you know, was incredible. I just thought that was such a satisfying, painful, but satisfying way to end the drama. Cause I didn't know, I just couldn't see how they were just going to, how, how it would end, you know, in a way that brought it all back to Dokim after she had died so young. So anyway, I'm going to stop talking about it. Um, I've talked so long, which I tend to do about my favorite favorites. And I cannot believe there was so much I didn't even touch on. I cannot believe I didn't talk about the second male lead, Hong, who was just such an interesting character. Um, but, you know, there's just only so much time in the world to talk about things. And um, I'm going to go for a walk with G, even though it's raining, which is a bit fucked. How annoying. Oh, so this took way longer than I thought it would. So I really got to go. Um. Thank you so much for listening to this enormous waffle. Um, I really, really hope that you try to watch The Red Sleeve Cuff if you haven't. And if you have watched it and you've listened to this, I hope that you feel my pain and my love. <laughs> um, yeah, what a beautiful drama. Really one of my absolute all-time favorites of all time. It's just extraordinary. And I think I'm going to rewatch it very soon. <laughs> all right. Thank you for listening.
brings me to the very end of this week's episode. Um, for anyone who's still listening after this mega, mega episode in which I talked for a rather long time, um, thank you so much. I really hope you got something out of me waffling at you for the good part of two hours. Oh my gosh. Um, so just before I go, I just want to say a huge thank you to all listeners who are still listening at this point. Um, and also, as always, just the most massive thank you to my Patreon supporters. Um, I cannot quite express how much it means to me to... The fact that you guys like the show enough to support it on Patreon for a start, it is so, so encouraging for me. It really, really is. Um, And it also kind of, I think, enables me to spend so much time um, waffling along um, at length (laughs) when maybe I should be doing other things, if you know what I mean, like working. Um, But but yeah, less interested in working than I am in talking about K-drama. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is thank you to my Patreon supporters. Um, I also love all the conversations and the drama suggestions, and I think that you guys are amazing. Thank you so much. Um, This week, I also want to say a massive, massive thank you to Adrian Lilly, who is a new Patreon supporter which is bloody amazing. Thank you, Adrian. That's so very nice of you. (laughs) I'm so glad that you enjoy the show enough to do that. Thank you. Um, And, you know, just huge thank you to everyone who listens. Um, You know, it means a lot to me. And I can't believe this podcast has been going for two years, over two years. I don't even know. I probably should have looked that up. But I didn't. So what I'm going to do now is go. I'm going to leave, but I will be back next week. I hope that you tune in again for some more K-drama goodness. All right. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening.